0: Well, children, I want you to pause for a moment. We have many of you among us this evening, and I want you to look at your parents and parents, to look at your children, wives, at your husbands, and those who are here gathered at your brothers and sisters in Christ. And consider this question what makes the families of God different? What makes the particular Christian family different? What makes our church family different? It's not that Christian parents are perfect. It's not that they always discipline as they should. It's not as if the church always functions perfectly as she ought to do. Or that even Christian parents always have perfect words of wisdom. Or that we always know the exact way we ought to go. But we seek wisdom from one who is above. The Christian home, the Christian church... All are built and depend upon a foundation stayed upon God, who is perfectly faithful to keep his covenant promises to us. Though our families may falter, though as parents we may not know which way is up some days, God provides that foundation that we so desperately need, both in our family life, in our church life, and as we go abroad into a world that is lost and dying. God's unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable covenant faithfulness gives you and I, dear brothers and sisters, the strength and the the faithfulness that we also need for the life ahead of us. His unshakable and unchangeable covenant faithfulness provides us with a sure promise that we build our lives upon. And imagine how remarkable this is for a moment. Just just pause and consider that the God of heaven and earth, the God, as we look at Psalm 126, the God who is restoring his people from captivity, insurmountable, an insurmountable situation, humanly speaking. The Babylonians have taken his people captive, and they cry out to God, where is our help? In whom is our confidence? Our help is in the name of the Lord. And so, as we look around at a world that is in so desperate need of this faithfulness, we also need to consider this this need in ourselves for God's own covenant faithfulness as we worship, as we live, and as we fellowship with one another in the church. This Psalm 126 is a song of ascent, this is the people of God going up to Jerusalem. And what's interesting about this psalm in particular is it's different from most of the other psalms of ascent. Because this is written post-captivity. This is after they've gone away. The people of Judah have already been taken away to Babylon. But they're singing a song of worship. Even there. Even as they've come now back from Babylon. And they're looking at Jerusalem. And they're, they can cry out. To God and say, This is not what it ought to be. But we will worship, we will bow down, and we will we will sing this song, this psalm of ascent, as we come to worship at the footstool. And so this psalm gives us a glimpse into the emotions, the struggles of those same families who have now come back from Babylon. Those people that the time of, ne- of Nehemiah, the time of Ezra the time of Haggai, the prophet. And you'll notice in this psalm, there is this struggle with, of course, captivity. But there are also, as we look at the books of Haggai and Nehemiah in the context of Psalm 126, there are three particular struggles that the people are dealing with. There's a struggle with dry land. Haggai tells us that the people are dealing with drought, that there is no rain. Second, there's a struggle with enemies. Nehemiah tells us that there are wicked people around, particularly Sanballat and uh, Tobias. I forget what his, his, his title is, but Tobias is his first name. And they're looking to see how they can destroy the people of God. Nehemiah says, we are in fear for our very lives. So there's a struggle with drought, a struggle with enemies, but there's also a struggle against their own sin. And the drought, if you know all the covenant promises of God, the drought and the enemies are because of, because of their sin. Here's what Haggai chapter 1 says. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, the Lord, blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and on beast, and on all their labors. So consider this evening, as we look at the words of Psalm 126, consider not only the physical struggles of the people but the reality of the sin in their life that God is telling them, root this out. As you come to worship, as you come and ascend to Jerusalem, how are your hearts tuned to sing my praises? But through it all, through it all, the people of God are worshiping. And we have the words of the opening verse of the psalm, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion's, we were like those who dream. Really, the point and the message of the psalm is simply this, that God's covenant faithfulness, what verse 1 is pointing to, that God brings back His people. That even when they have been brought into captivity because of their sin, because of the realities of uh, the, the punishment that they brought upon themselves, that God's covenant faithfulness is the greatest gift that you, brothers and sisters, can celebrate. And it is the greatest foundation on which you can plead for mercy. That God's covenant faithfulness is the greatest gift you can celebrate and the greatest foundation on which you can plead for mercy. That's what the people do. They celebrate God's work in their midst, even as they struggle, even as they recognize their sin. And they celebrate and they plead for mercy. So we'll look under those two headings, celebrating God's covenant faithfulness and pleading his covenant faithfulness. So one through three, that first head, celebrating, and then four through six, pleading. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Imagine that you have just returned from Babylon, 70 years in captivity. You could have been born in Babylon and have never seen the promised land of Canaan never seen this land that your fathers and forefathers had longed for and that they, had, that they had enjoyed. And yet through years and years, hundreds of years of squandering those blessings of king after king, denying the realities of the gospel, denying worship even to their own people, Jeroboam building idols and people coming again and again. And God at, at, in the, in, after time and time, hundreds and hundreds of years, saying enough is enough, going away, being sent to Babylon, and you're born there. <laughs> and it's almost like a dream. When you come back to this land that Abraham was promised and that all, the, all of Israel's re- history had worked up to, this land of promise that you had now been driven from, and now you're back. It's like a dream, a dream come true. But we'll see that the dream and the reality are are often two very different things. Because what do they say in verse 2? The dream, it, it, it is coming true. Our mouths are being filled with laughter. Our tongues are being filled with these joyful shouts. Even the nations are saying, they're acknowledging the Lord's done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. We pause and, and stop a moment to reflect. Yes, it is difficult. We'll get to that in 4 through 6. But stop and reflect on what the Lord has done. Celebrate what he has done in bringing his people back. Just bringing them to Canaan. Bringing them out of Babylon. Out of captivity in a foreign land. Amidst a foreign people. We need to establish the realities and the foundation for this kind of a joy interestingly, in the psalm, if you're looking at it, you might say, well, wait, covenant faithfulness isn't really anywhere in the psalm. I don't see I see joy, I see laughter, I see shouting, I see captivity and, and captive ones. But I want to argue this evening, and I think this is the argument of the text, that the very foundation, the very foundation of this restoration, of the laughter, of the shouts, of the joy, is the covenant faithfulness of God. That he is the primary actor in the text. That God is the one that they plead upon. That God is the one that they celebrate. And his covenant faithfulness is what they are rejoicing in. might even consider the words of Jeremiah chapter 29. These are words that will be very familiar. There's a verse in here that you should recognize. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is their future. This is their hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes, or your, it's actually the same phrase as we have in verse 1. I will bring back the captive ones and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so God is the one at work in our text. And Israel testifies that he is the one at work. They are the ones shouting. They are the ones laughing. They are the ones, in verse 3, who declare, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Israel acknowledges not only with their life, not only that their bodies are back, that their possessions are back, that their homes are being restored in Israel, but they acknowledge with their mouths. They testify to God's covenant faithfulness in the way they speak. And so often we can get caught up in, well, my life ought to be a testimony to the gospel that's true. But my lips should sing his praise. The words I speak should be like these of the Israelites. The Lord has done great things for me, and I am glad. Praise be to his name. But maybe even more astounding than the people's testimony, than Israel's testimony, is the nation's testimony, that they acknowledge, the nations acknowledge that the Lord has done great things for them, for Israel. Here are Gentiles looking on Israel and seeing what God, the covenant-keeping and the covenant-making God has done for his people. But the sad reality, if you look at the way the nations speak, the Lord has done great things for them. They are not identifying with the people of God. They have not yet believed in the promised Messiah. They have not yet been grafted in. But there is a future hope. There is the future promise that the Gentiles will come streaming in up to Mount Zion, as Isaiah 2 would prophesy. Because the nations are testifying, and the people of Israel are, are, are acknowledging the same thing, the same truth, That God, the creator of all nations, the king of heaven and earth, has done great things for his people. And we are glad. Does Does God's goodness, does his faithfulness to you make you giddy? Does it fill you with laughter? Even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of returning from captivity and the land is not what it was, The temple is not what it was. They're going to have to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. Do you stop and rejoice in the good things that he has done? Instead of wishing and hoping for what has not yet been accomplished. We know we live in that tension. And the psalm, it's right in front of us here in the text of the already and the not yet. He has done great things for us. And we are glad And we're going to see in verse 4 that there's a need for more restoration. But do you stop and pause to be rejoicing and happy in the moment that you are in and saying, God, I praise you that you are the king who has restored to me all the things that you've promised and that though I have wandered, you have sent your son to die for my particular sins. That you have broken my legs and dragged me back to yourself. That you have brought me in your love, in your, in, in your redemption for me. You have won me to yourself. You have done it and I could not. Do you take for granted God's gifts in your life? Are you maybe unimpressed with his sovereign work? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Yeah, I know all those Bible Bible verses. I know all those all those stories from when I was a kid, but they're, you know, they're just, it's the Bible. How can you be more observant? How can you be more aware of God's provision for you, of his protection of you? Because he has brought you to this place this evening. He's brought you into his house and to worship. And we are glad. When you see him at work, do you stop? Do you pray? And do you thank him for his covenant faithfulness to you? So so often we allow those times to slip us by, and we don't pray as we should. We don't pray as often as we should. But simply to stop and offer that that quick prayer to say, God, I, I praise you, that you have done this for me. I acknowledge that you are my king and my sovereign, that I'm glad. And it's not a fleeting joy. It's a joy that lasts through the trials, and through the pain. What is your testimony before the unbelievers? The, Israel, the people of God give their testimony. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Is it God's work? Is your testimony before unbelievers God's work on your behalf through Christ? Do you rejoice and celebrate not only with your in your own soul, not only in the way you live, not only in the things you don't say, or the things that you the things you cherish and the things you give your money to, but do you acknowledge God with your lips? Do you celebrate Him with your tongues? That they would be filled with laughter and with shouting. Joy. And well, not only do we see this need for celebration, we also see the pleading on God's covenant faithfulness, verses 4 through 6. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who, comes to him, he who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. the request it's interesting you see this in a lot of the psalms that the request is often held till the middle or to the end of the psalm and you see that same pattern here verses 1 through 3 you have the reminder and the the acknowledgment the testimony of what god who god is and what he has done and then in verse 4 you have the request you have the petition the pleading upon the throne of grace, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And to get a sense of what this is, you know, we have, a, we have a, an inspired simile here, as the streams in the south. Well, the southern region of Judah, if you look it up, you can, you can Google images of the Negeb. This region in the south is absolutely almost, you could say, desert. Most will call it arid. But it, to my mind, it's a desert. There's almost nothing that grows. It's some mountains and it's sand, as far as the eye can see. Imagine there streams in that place. That that is life. That that is vegetation. That that is provision. That that's a future and a hope. That the streams, if God does not send the rain on that desert land, there will be no Produce. There is no hope to yield a harvest in the south if God does not send the water, if he does not send the stream so that the land produces an increase. And what's interesting, we read even in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, that the people are dry, that the people are desperate, that they are cracked and parched, and they need God's provision. And so they asked to, for restoration. Nehemiah chapter nine says this: "Behold, and remember, they're in the land. They're already they've rebuilt the wall, and this is what Nehemiah says: "Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and of its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it in Canaan. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. And so we are in great distress. People are in captivity still. Their exile has in part been restored. Their exile has in part been removed. But there is a longing that the people have, not just for more, but for one who could satisfy their deepest longings. And I I think it is no stretch at all to say that the hope of the people of God in Psalm 126, the hope of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 9, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is when Jesus comes, and only when Jesus comes, that the exile from Babylon is finished. Because Nehemiah acknowledges we are still slaves All of our goods are still going to Babylon. We may be here physically, but we're still slaves. But God gives his people joy. Not only do they see their need, their real need, as slaves, as parched, as needing God to send the rain as in the south, but notice verses 5 and 6, that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his seed, notice the imperative here, or or the, the intensification, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The remnant in Israel had a seemingly insurmountable task ahead of them. They were seeking to restore Israel to the glories of King Solomon. They wanted the temple to be beautiful as it once was. And Nehemiah reminds, even in his prayer to God, pleading for him to meet their needs in this land, the people are reminded that only God's temple, that only his house That only the Spirit indwelling them and transforming them will bring about this kind of restoration. Will bring about the true hope that they are longing for. What's interesting is that God did, in part, fulfill these very promises that are written about here in verses 5 and 6. We read in the book of Ezra, "...they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy." That they were able to keep a feast for the first time in a long time that they had not been able to keep for years. Why? Because, this is Ezra, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God made them joyful. God gave them hope even there in that land, even there where they, as Nehemiah acknowledges, were still not quite free. But they look to freedom, true freedom, in a land of promise that does not fade away, whose temple cannot be destroyed, heaven itself. That was their home. That is the people of Israel's true home. The walls only stood for so long against their enemies. And the temple was not as glorious. Their home is in heaven. Ultimately, the finished work of Christ is what redeems his people, both then and now. So what do you do, you might be asking, and rightly so. What do you do while you wait on the Lord? What do the people do? they're, they're, They're staring at a reality in front of them. They're not in heaven yet. Christ has not yet come at this time in redemptive history. They're still sowing in tears. And they're still carrying their seed to and fro, weeping. But you prepare yourself, brothers and sisters. God has put before you tasks today. God has called you to obey, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. You faithfully sow with tears. And you expect that he will bring the increase in his time and in his way. Because what does he say in verse 6? His promise is a sure promise to you, his child that you will indeed you will surely come again with a shout of joy of joy bringing your sheaves with you that god will bring the increase that you must trust and wait on him expectantly that you must wait in hope knowing that he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it galatians chapter 6 verse 9 we read it earlier as our new testament reading let us not grow weary isn't that our temptation? Isn't that our struggle? We, like these people, it's so easy to look around us and say, God, God this this area, this, this land that I'm in is destitute. These temples I'm looking at are, are, are not like the glory of heaven. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Why? Because God is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. And there is this continued tension that the Lord, verse 1, who brought back the captive ones of Zion in the past, will restore, in verse 4, the captivity of His people. That He who called you is faithful not only in the past, but for the future. That He will give you that hope. That Jeremiah speaks of. Christ has come. Christ has redeemed you. Christ has adopted you. And God or the Father has adopted us. And brought us into his family. Has given us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Spirit, soul and body. But we still feel the effects of our sin. We still feel pain, loss, death, disappointment. We long for Christ to come back. We long to go home to our true home in heaven with him. And everything on this earth points us there. And it reminds us that we are passing onto a land that is far more glorious, where not only will the streams run, but the river of God will will, will quench our greatest thirst. For we drink deeply from that well that never runs dry. As we come to that water, as we come to that Savior, as we come... To that king. We have a sure promise that we will come home with shouts of joy because God has placed us here. God has placed us in families. He has placed us in churches. He has placed us with brothers and sisters to remind us to fix our eyes on heaven, to be founded upon His faithfulness, not just to to get through this life as quick as possible and hope for something better. No. But to embrace the tears and the struggles because God is working through them. That the foundation laid in His covenant faithfulness is a sure foundation. And that we build upon that foundation that God has built. That is Himself. His work. His finished work in Christ. And He calls you to take up your seed. To take up your work. With that calling in mind, when it is hard, when it seems that that you're not making any progress, when it seems as if, like the people, captivity is all around you, look to Christ's second coming. When every tear will indeed be wiped away, every arduous labor recognized and praised. And if you believe in Jesus Christ today as your hope for salvation, as the only Redeemer of God's elect. You will be told these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.